Hello, Hub listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. Welcome to this, our regular Friday roundtable for the 2nd of February, 2024, joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and a special guest in the back half of the program that you're not going to want to miss. Sean, how are we finding you today as we roll over from January into February? Uh, we're doing great. Uh, we're, like, like as we ought to do, we're planning a trip for Sunday to Ottawa in the middle of February where I'm speaking at a conference on on Monday and when I accepted the invitation I said I really wish you would have put this in the spring or in Turks and Caicos or something but the the program was too good to, to turn down so uh, my family and I will be off to Ottawa this weekend how, how about you how does uh, how does today find you and your family yes uh, we've got a sunny weekend coming up so um, I think all of us here in Southern Ontario, there's some incredible statistic, like since December 21st and the start of winter, we've had like six hours of sunlight during daytime. So uh, I'm going to be out there soaking it up, um, maybe go for a jog, get uh, get some of the vitamin D. Um, I'm feeling a little deprived. <laughs> well, talking about deprived, we had a busy week at the Hub this week. In fact, we just wrapped up our busiest month ever in terms of... Um, page views and user sessions, uh, soon closing in on a, looks like half a million served pages in a 30-day period. Um, just to brag a bit, the Hub was bigger than than McLean's this month, if you look at websites like SimilarWeb and others that compare traffic. Um, so it's great to see us, Sean, catching up on the mainstream media. And that's where I want to begin this week's show. You had a, a podcast interview with broadcaster Steve Pakin that caused some waves this week um, as a result of some of Steve's comments. He's a, he's a much loved, uh, much admired uh, broadcaster who uh, has been a, a stalwart of federal election debates, uh, television Ontario's terrific public affairs coverage and commentary. But the reaction to this podcast, Sean, I think it's just an interesting way for us maybe to get into a bit of a discussion with our readership about, where we find ourselves right now in Canada in terms of the national conversation, in terms of the state of the media. And we're going to pick this all up with our special guest in the back half of the show. Yeah, well, as uh, listeners probably know, uh, for the past several weeks, we've been running uh, weekly podcast episodes dedicated to the question of the future of news. We've had guests ranging from Martin Barron, the former executive editor of the Washington Post, to Andrew Coyne and uh, at the Globe and Mail and, and and various others. And this week, as you say, we were honored to have Steve Pakin on the podcast, bringing a bunch of different perspectives, including um, someone who spent most of his career within a public broadcaster. And as you say, I put a question to him that I've, I've put to a lot of the different guests over the course of the series, which is how has the industry evolved over the course of your career in general? And in particular, a, a growing sense that... Uh, uh, younger journalists uh, see their part of their function and responsibility to effectively express their values through their journalism. And Steve could have answered that in various different ways, but he he took me up on on my question and, and was quite forthright um, that this is indeed a, a fault line that he's witnessing uh, on a day to day basis as a journalist. Incidentally, that's something that Marty Baron. Uh, said as well, and that it concerns him um, that notwithstanding the inherent challenges of objectivity, you know, given our personal biases and so on, that ultimately um, 
it's in the interest of the news media as an institution um, to be committed to those principles. And yet uh, there are there, there's a kind of growing expectation amongst younger journalists that objectivity, in effect, amounts to affirming you know, certain structural problems within our society, including racism and inequality and sexism and all the rest. And in fact, there's an onus instead to kind of lean lean in the opposite direction to uh, effectively do what one might call activist journalism. And and as you say, uh, those, you know, I think pretty insightful and, and pretty intuitive and frankly, uh, uh, arguments or ideas that I think would have pretty broad support in the public have provoked quite a backlash from the journalistic community, uh, uh, which I think in a way, uh, uh, inadvertently, I think points to, you know, the very arguments that, that Steve's making. What, what, what was your reaction to Steve's comments and, and, and the reaction to Steve's, to Steve's comments? So I, I actually thought it was hopeful, uh, not in terms of the tenor and the substance of the attacks on Steve, which I think were just, unfair and misplaced and i don't think people really understood the spirit in which he kind of shared his his point of view which is one of constructive criticism uh, i think what i find interesting sean is how flinty the mainstream media has become in this country how quick they are to react to any criticism no matter how minor and despite from journalism schools to most mainstream media newsrooms, they're pretty much complete ideological dominance of the discussion as it unfolds within their within their institutions. That they are, we know from surveys, they are overwhelmingly center left in their political orientation. They're overwhelmingly likely to vote for left and center left parties. Uh, they are ideologically coherent and in this case, they are policing wrong speak whenever they see it. And on one level, you could say, well, that's really bad. And it's a sign of, you know, their kind of dominance and power. On the other side, I think it just shows how mainstream media is, has maybe, let's say, maybe it's already happened, has lost an incredible amount of credibility with the public public is very frustrated with their ideological bias. They're skeptical of the large scale public subsidies that once this deal with Google gets put into effect, we'll see not just the CBC, but all uh, newsrooms of digital print organizations like the Globe and Mail and the Toronto Star and others funded up to 50% of their payroll costs. So I, I almost hope, Sean, that this kind of kerfuffle over Steve's, again, pretty innocuous mainstream comments shows that we might be at a tipping point, a moment of real inflection um, where the public is walking away from mainstream media in droves. And just to say selfishly, <laughs> we welcome this. Maybe it's partly why we had such an amazing month at the Hub in January. It might not be our brilliance, Sean, uh, your <laughs> curatorial and editorial smarts or my marketing savvy. It just might be that a lot of people are searching out alternative news sources that are not um, captured by this kind of groupthink that you know was on full display in Twitter in terms of the, the attacks that were being launched at uh, Steve Pagan. Yeah, let me make a comment 
and then put a question to you because I, I I think you're you're really onto something. My 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 comment is one thing that struck me about the reaction to Steve's um, comments, Roger, is that the people have tended to really focus on the narrow point that um, a lot of mainstream journalists ha are are partisan in their in their work and that they have a kind of finger or on the dial, so to speak, uh, in terms of outright partisan preferences. Um, and, 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 and they've avoided the broader, more nuanced, but I think ultimately more important point, uh, which is uh, that while they may or may not be partisan, they clearly do have, as you say, a degree of ideological coherence and a, a set of kind of normative assumptions about politics and the economy and society and whether that is actively in the interest of one party over the other in, in some ways is a kind of secondary point in my mind which leads me to my question to you do you think Roger that that is purposeful that this is a case of of effectively um you know sort of wagging the dog you know that is to say taking up one argument in the hopes of of um avoiding the other one? Or do you think they kind of genuinely are lack self-awareness about the extent to which they are sort of animated by these uh, ideological points of view or, or political values, and that the industry as a whole is kind of shot through with them? In, in, in other words, is this, in, is this in, by design or, or is this uh, operating on a kind of level of subconsciousness um, that makes it arguably uh, even more damaging in a way um, because because the, it's hard for, for journalists to put a kind of check on it. Well, I think there's an answer, and it's interesting to think how what's happening in journalism really is now mapping what's happening in many cases around public perceptions of higher learning, especially in the aftermath of the reactions in some quarters in higher learning to October 7th and the support for just the outright support for decolonization and uh, you know, de facto alliance allyship with with Hamas, which I think just really shocked a lot of people. So I, I think what's happening here, Sean, is what I what I would as ascribe it to is as in academia with those minority voices, and let's be acknowledged that they were minority voices who were kind of supporting um, the Hamas attacks of October seventh, or at least the legitimacy of armed Palestinian resistance, I think a lot of this has to do with signaling. And I think it has to do with the world that we live in, the hyper-connected world of social media, of people um, policing their, their own groups, of wanting to project and signal to their groups that they are a member of the tribe, that they are signed up to the orthodoxy. So I see the reaction to Steve Pakin's podcast with us and the kind of piling on on Twitter. It's not so much maybe even that they feel particularly incensed about what Steve said or ideologically worked up. It's that it it's an it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for them to show their fidelity and allegiance to the group thing. Um, and all all communities do this. We I think we're wired this way a bit as a species. We you know, tribalism runs, you know, runs deep through the human psyche. Maybe it even runs deep through our gene pool. Um, people who are part of groups need to find outsiders. They need to find heterodoxy. And 
you know, single it out, hopefully in their views, suppress it, name it, shame it. And I just think it's amusing now that this is happening inside academia and inside media. And it just seems so irrelevant and intramural and self-obsessed. And, and I just think they're losing the broader argument, academia and the media. They're, they're failing to connect with a public that wants objectivity, that wants public purpose, that wants, frankly, you know, utility, utility of information, utility of scholarship and study. And look, I'm, I'm hopeful now increasingly. I feel like the tide is turning, the pendulum is swinging, and these organizations are under not just scrutiny, they're in a stress position, and it's showing in their, in their rhetoric in this increasingly almost kind of frantic, panicked, you know, discourse. Yeah, what, what's the old Kissinger line? Um, that the fights in the faculty are so fierce because they matter so little. Uh, yeah. You know, one could probably extend that to the intramural debates within the news media. I agree, Roger, that there are pretty powerful incentives pushing people to effectively pick sides in these types of of intramural conflicts. They're not picking sides. They're there. There's one side. <laughs> well, well, but but so that yeah. but that that that's exactly right. Which kind of leads me to my my bigger point, which is part of it may be the the inherent incentives, but part of me thinks it really is. The, there's so much kind of homogeneity now, Roger, that they don't even realize that people because right. they're, they're they they so infrequently are confronted with yes. alternative points of view that they don't even really know the that... difference between an inside voice and an outside voice. It's like, they're just speaking in the inside voice all the time well, to people on the outside and people on the outside are like, Whoa, what is this? You well, pr precisely. Like we've had this debate now at the hub over the past several weeks uh, about um, Jack Granitsky's book, who killed Can yeah. Canadian history. We have a piece this morning, uh, February 2nd by Chris Dumit, a pro history professor at U of T Put, Trent. A, a Trent University, rather, yeah. pushing back against some of the criticism that that series has received from academic historians. But yeah, one, of the things that, one of the things that struck me about the reaction from academic historians is that they that they seem surprised to discover that there is a <laughs> prevailing view that they have a kind of ideological coherence, as you put it. They're all like, yeah. who, us? No, we're just pursuing the facts. And of course, there's lots yeah. of diversity of opinion on campus, et cetera. Like if, 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 if by diversity of opinion, you mean, you know, you, you don't know when the cultural genocide against indigenous people started, um, but that there's no debate that we've indeed carried out a, a cultural genocide against indigenous people. I mean, that is, that is not diversity. That is not yeah. a, a real debate. And so I guess that's a very long way of saying I think at least part of the explanation is that when you aren't confronted with other ideas or other opinions over time, you, you know, your, your thinking can calcify in such yeah. a way to think that there is only one way that there, there is a kind of capital T truth. And I think that really, in a lot of ways, is 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 at the root of the problems in academia and uh, in the mainstream media. Well said. And both groups, I think, are not only just losing, I think they've lost the public argument. They've lost a connection to the broader public to speak with them, as you say, in an outside voice that the public would recognize as reasonable, coherent, fair, dare I say, balanced. 
Anyway, let's keep this discussion going. We've got a special guest we're going to bring on to the show on the other side of this break. You're not going to want to miss it. She's got some really unique, interesting insights, brings um, a lifetime of career in uh, in journalism um, and some, I think, fresh kind of heterodox thinking. So we'll have that conversation for you right after this break. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday compilation of our best writing from the previous week again free for you right now at www.thehub.ca welcome back to the hub roundtable rudyard griffiths here the executive director of the hub i'm joined by sean spear our editor at large and our guest for the back half of the show tara henley tara great to have you on the program great to be with you well for those of you who have not discovered uh, Tara's amazing Substack and podcasts. Uh, this is someone who swims in some of the same intellectual waters of the hub, really cares about issues of free speech and the state, the tenor, the quality of our public discourse today. And Tara, I want to start with you about an article that you wrote for us in the last week on the theme of is Canada broken? It really resonated with our audience. You had some interesting analysis and insights in that commentary. We'll include a link to the uh, article in today's show notes, but why don't you give us a, a breakdown of your kind of key argument? Where is this momentum, this kind of malaise, unfortunately, that seems to be affecting Canadians coming from the brokenness that many of us feel uh, in our lives, in the country, in the institutions that we're interacting with? Well, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I, I've noticed because my podcast has guests from around the world, I get a chance to talk to a lot of people. And often when I'm recording the podcast, before or after, the guest will say, what has happened to Canada? And um, I think that our political class and our media may not be aware of this perception out there in the world. And so I started to think about, okay, how would I explain this to people living elsewhere? What has happened that we're experiencing this a decline across so many parts of our society? Now, I, I just want to say up front, I am optimistic, but I also am realistic. And so what we have are these sort of cascading crises crises all across society, the housing crisis, the opioid crisis. Um, we're seeing uh, government debacles like the Arrive Can app. I know you've been speaking about that, yeah, ethics scandals. We have sort of out of control public policy on the immigration front, on, on our MAID program. And we just had the ruling on the Emergencies Act, which said the, you know, the government broke the law during the trucker crisis. And then we have stuff like per capita GDP being down and our birth rate plummeting and our education system in crisis post uh, October 7th. These are a lot of things going on. And then you have these sort of embarrassing moments on the world stage for Canada, like the standing ovation in parliament for a Nazi or, you know, going back much further 
Teresa Tam saying that single people in the pandemic, if they were going to have intercourse, should be wearing masks. I mean, that was widely mocked comment. So you have these kind of strange, embarrassing moments in the midst of all of this. So I was trying to figure out, like, what has happened? Why are we experiencing this kind of strange decline across so many fronts. And the conclusion that I've come to is that this is really about uh, economic inequality, but but not just economic inequality, economic precarity. And so my sense is that the housing crisis in particular has destabilized our society. And so when you have whole generations of people who not only cannot afford to buy a house, but also can't afford to rent, and can't afford, you know, rental housing is not stable housing. You, you can't necessarily start a stable life in that. And so we're having a generation who are not uh, putting down roots, who are often precariously employed, who are delaying the life cycle, who are not starting families, uh, who are working really long hours just trying to get by. Food costs are high, inflation, all of those things. And who are extremely angry and frustrated. And then along comes the pandemic and our public policy heightened these tensions. They reinforced these big economic divides. And we did not listen to the people who were most affected. And so you have a sort of polarization spiral that was kicked off, I believe, during the trucker crisis and is just intensifying so that each side of this divide is getting louder and more extreme and our public debate is being kind of dominated by this. So that's it in a nutshell. Uh, a ton of insight there, Tara. Um, your observations about um, the extent to which housing issues are at the bottom of a lot of these issues resonates a great deal with me. Um, uh, we've been socialized to see uh, owning a home or or renting a home is a crucial step along the path of the the so-called success sequence. And when that sequence breaks, I think it is destabilizing for a lot of people. It brings into question a whole host of assumptions that re have really undergirded our uh, society for a long time. I, I want to uh, try to connect some dots, though, uh, for a minute. We've just come off, uh, Rudyard and I, a conversation about the news media. Uh, of course, uh, you are part of the news media, and you've written in the past the extent to which certain intellectual and ideological trends within the mainstream media are contributing to that sense of destabilization that you just outlined. Uh, why don't you talk about that? What's the role of the news media in contributing to this sense of of attenuation and, and polarization in, in, in Canadian society? I think I think part of what's happening is we we have a failing media and intellectual class right now. And it it pains me to say that because I know there are so many smart and talented journalists and intellectuals in this country who work really hard to resist these trends. But overall, uh, we again, back to the economic issues, which I know you have been covering extensively on the future of news, we we have a collapsing media industry and we have government which has intervened with very aggressive public policy that that I don't think Think has helped <laughs> at all in our media. And so you have that same sort of economic precarity and economic instability in the media. And I think it breeds conformity. And, you know, as the same time as the housing crisis came along, a new ideology came along. And, you know, a lot of people refer to this as woke, but I talk about it as identitarian moralism. 
it's a cluster of very radical and quite extreme beliefs on things like gender and race. And uh, it is very illiberal. It, it shuts down debate instead of encouraging debate. And, and the problem with this ideology is it, I think it has taken, you know, the very good instincts of very many well-meaning Canadians. We see this inequality. It's not good for society. We want to do something about that. And diverted those great intentions to symbolic gestures instead of working on material conditions and making actual change. And this thinking has dominated the media. And it's a very difficult thing to unpack because it is, it is presented as a moral imperative. If you are a decent person, this is how you should think about the world. It is not presented as an ideology. And so many of the arguments that I had in the newsroom, for example, was to point out that this is a political ideology and we are politicizing content. And it, beyond just it being a political ideology, it's an extremely unpopular one with the general public. It's very divisive. Many of its ideas go against the sort of liberal, pluralistic ethos that many of us have been raised with. Um, and so the media has been caught in this cycle of of polarization and hyper-politicized content, and it it has lost effectively the trust of the Canadian public. And so this is a key moment when we need the media, when we need diversity of opinion. If we're going to get out of this cycle of crises and decline, we need all the ideas on the table right now. And we, we're just not getting that. Tara, you know, your diagnostic uh, here, specifically the effects of, you know, housing and the extent to which they go well beyond economic um, outcomes or needs that this affects, you know, people at a psychological level, it's certainly having an effect on generations of younger Canadians. I wonder what your thoughts about, we know this, it's, it's, it's like a known known. And yet, what we've seen in the last year in Canada has been this massive surge in, in population through temporary, primarily through temporary worker visas, but also temporary student visas that have, I mean, if you wanted to kind of open mouth and insert foot some way and you, and your problem was housing, the, the policy reaction over the last 12 to 18 months has been to do exactly that, to exacerbate this, these problems, to make them worse. And I'm wondering if you have a diagnostic for that, like, why are we, why do we seemingly do the very things that are intensifying this like poly crisis in a sense that you're identifying that a lot of it has to do with housing and the deep kind of emotional and other needs and issues that are associated with shelter. Well, I think it's about conflicting interests and weighing those conflicting interests. And I think, I mean, in terms of the huge increase of students, there are academic institutions and pseudo academic institutions for whom that is extremely helpful. Uh, bringing in temporary former for foreign workers is extremely helpful for some businesses. Um, the the housing crisis in Vancouver, where I grew up, you often see the sort of dialogue split between the half of the people in the city who own property and the half that rent. The decision makers are overwhelmingly people who own property. These are houses that were, you know, 20, 30 years ago, 300,000 that are now 3 million. That's not small amounts of money that is going to impact how people view 
uh, the housing crisis. For some people, it's a disaster. For others, it's a windfall. So how do we negotiate this clash of interests, I think is the question. And, and coming back to the media, we must be able to talk about these clash of interests and to have wide ranging conversations on what have been until now extremely taboo topics. So coming back to immigration, we are seeing in recent weeks a more fulsome conversation about immigration, but up until now, it has been very taboo to talk about it. And so I think it's come as news to much of the public <laughs> that these numbers are what they are. And um, and that's a, that's a very unhealthy dynamic. That's, Tara, you set out earlier that notwithstanding um, these various uh, indices or signs of decline that you're still ultimately optimistic. Please do Rudyard and uh, do Rudyard and me a favor, including our our listeners. What gives you reason for optimism in light of the rather dire uh, picture that you paint? I'm very optimistic, and let let me tell you why. Um, I, First of all, people are amazing. As someone who interviews people for a living, and I talk to a lot of Canadians on a regular basis, I get a lot of mail from readers. People are good. They love the country. They want the country to get on track. The vast majority of people are not hyper-polarized. They want to have reasonable conversations and uh, are open to hearing a, a wide range of ideas and all of this. So I believe in the public. That's the first thing. And I also believe that there's a lot of people in this country, in, including yourselves, who are working really hard to have reasonable conversations about these issues. And so there's three signs that I just saw this past week that gave me a lot of hope. Uh, Steve Pakin on your podcast, very respected journalist across the country, um, even though he's in Ontario, uh, talking about, about journalism and really pushing back on this idea that the aspiration of objectivity is antiquated. This is something the public talks to me about all the time. They just want us as journalists to present the facts and to trust the public to make their own mind up on it. That is not how a lot of practicing journalists in this country view that issue now. So hearing Steve speak about that in such a straightforward way was incredibly heartening for me. Uh, Steve Stephen Marsh, also in the Globe and Mail, wrote a piece about the ideological extremism on the left uh, in, in light of the Gaza conflict. You could not have published that essay in 2020 in a mainstream outlet. Uh, I found his analysis incredibly clear-eyed, very courageous, very straightforward, and it's really resonating. And then lastly, the Federal Court Emergencies Act ruling is, to me, a sign that our institutions are not hopelessly broken, that they are still questioning the government and that we are still effectively working. Um, and so all three of those signs are are hopeful to me. Here, here. So Tara, if people want to find you on Substack, if they want to find your podcasting, uh, where can they go? So my Substack is tarahenley.substack.com. And, and you can find my podcast, Lean Out, on, on any place that carries podcasts. Great. So Lean Out, check it out. Um, Hub listeners, it's a great podcast, fantastic guests. Um, and again, kind of in the spirit of like open, civil, substantive dialogue on the important issues of our time. So Tara, thanks so much for coming on the roundtable. Keep doing what we're doing. We love you. And uh, let's do this again. Absolutely. And thanks so much for having me.
That's a wrap for this week's roundtable uh, with me, Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, and Sean Spear, our editor-at-large special guest, Tara Henley, joining us for the back half of the program. Please tune in next week and tune in some great content and coverage in The Hub. You'll get our Saturday Best of The Hub uh, tomorrow in your inbox, and then kicking off Monday, a busy publication schedule on deck. Uh, tune in, enjoy, comment. Uh, we always love your feedback and reflections. You can send emails to editorial at thehub.ca. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support, and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.